Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be continuing coverage of the Judge Rotenberg Center in Canton, Massachusetts. Let's get right to it. In the past five episodes, we've gone over the history of the Behavior Research Institute, now the Judge Rotenberg Center, invention of the CIBIS, graduated electronic decelerator, several of the multiple accounts of abuse at the hands of Matthew Israel and JRC, the prank call, the criminal charges against Israel, the Andre McCollins case, the UN torture report, and the beginning of the FDA hearing. If you haven't heard the previous five episodes, you might want to skip back. We've covered a lot. Let's pick right back up with the FDA panel hearing. The year is 2014, and advocacy groups, survivors of the JRC, the ACLU, Cheryl McCollins, Greg Miller, Occupy JRC, Disability Law Center, the ARC of the U.S., Shane Newmeyer, and countless others testified about the GED device and what was really happening at the Judge Rotenberg Center. We went over the report by the ACLU last week, but numerous other advocates and attorneys testified, and there's no way to cover them all. The common theme was that the treatment at Judge Rotenberg Center wasn't treatment at all. It was torture, and the devices used with the exception of the GED-1 were never approved for use by the FDA. Two survivors testified about their time at the Judge Rotenberg Center. First up was Ian Cook. Ian was a student at JRC from 2006 to 2009 and was on the GED-4 for the majority of his time there. He took the stand and testified, quote, The only good thing that the JRC did for me was taking me off my medication. It turned out they were at the root of my problems. The GED, however, didn't help me at all. On the contrary, I had been put on the GED due to my previous aggressive behavior. That said, I cannot remember a single time I was ever shocked for said behavior. Most of my shocks were for noncompliance or disruption. In fact, I was also subject to a method known as BRLs, or Behavior Rehearsal Lessons. While I was sitting in a restraint chair, a staff would burst into my conference room, I was one-on-one alone with staff, and screamed at me to hurt him, holding a knife. Even though I did absolutely nothing and sat there in shock, not having any idea what was going on, I would receive a shock from the GED device. This happened a couple of times a week at first and left me in a constant state of fear, never knowing when I'd be hurt for no reason. My experiences from the GED have affected me to this very day. I now suffer from a fear of authority, a fear of being controlled, and I panic when presented with either. A side note, I was in an abusive relationship two years ago, and part of why I fell prey to it, my belief is that JRC instilled a lesson in me that it is okay for people to hurt me, 
so long as they are trying to correct me. I have, to the best of my knowledge, not experienced any beneficial effects, both either short-term or long-term, from the effects of the GED. I would strongly suggest, based on my personal experience and my ongoing difficulties, that the FDA ban the current and future use of the device. Jennifer Masumba was a student at the Judge Rotenberg Center from 2002 to 2009. Her testimony was sent to the panel via video. This is her testimony. When I would get a GED, I would get most of the times, I would get a very bad muscle cramp that would last me for one to two days. I would get burn marks on my skin. They like to call them small raised bumps. They're burn marks. It's electricity going into your skin and it's very itchy and it stings afterwards. And you have these circular marks where you got the GED. I also at one time was given several GEDs in one leg in a row, and I had a terrible pain shoot all the way through to my foot. And after that, I had no sensation in my skin on the lower half of my left leg. And for about a year, if I would touch my skin, I couldn't even feel anything that touched my skin from that. Also, the GEDs will what they call misfire a lot. That happened to me in double digits, where it would go off by itself, maybe if it got wet. One time, I got caught in the rain. Other times, if they give a GED to someone else nearby and that device is too similar to yours, it can set yours off. Then I had times when the staff made mistakes and mixed up whose device they're using. So they're meaning to give a GED to another student and they give it to you. I've seen some people's just go off and keep going off and going off over and over and staff would literally have to rip open the bag and pull out all the wires to get it to stop. These are things that you are getting shocked for no reason at all, not even for behavior. It's an accident and it happens all the time. It's not safe. It doesn't feel safe. I ended up having nightmares weekly, if not nightly, at least once a week about JRC, about being on the GEDs. In these nightmares, I'm getting shocked. During the day, if I hear certain noises, like the Velcro they use to keep them close, I freeze. I feel like it's about to happen to me. Or if I'm having a hard time, I start to think I'm there again and that I'm going to get shocked for it. I've been to dozens of horrible places, hospitals, residential schools, and I have never once had a nightmare about any of them. Seven years. Jennifer Masumba was subjected to this treatment at the hands of those at JRC for seven years. The hearing concluded with the recommendation of the panel that the FDA thoroughly investigate exactly what in the fresh hell was going on at the Judge Rotenberg Center. But real action from the FDA wouldn't happen for years. Before that could happen, in 2015, Matthew Israel reared his ugly head again. According to EdSource.com, Israel was out in California working at two of his wife's schools, Tobin World 2 and Tobin World 3. At Tobin World 2, Israel was working as a behavior analyst, and his job, we'll get this, was designing special education behavioral intervention plans for students. 
Hold on while I contain my astonishment. This guy just won't quit. And it gets better because state regulations specify that behavior intervention plans must be designed by staff members who hold a valid license to practice psychology or a related specialty, an appropriate teaching credential, or a master's degree in psychology or other relevant fields. And Tobin World 2 did not provide evidence that Israel met any of those criteria. At Tobin World 3, Israel was working as an administrator. Surprise, surprise. And again, Israel was accused of being deceptive. You see, not only had his credentials not been provided to the correct agency, none of the agencies knew he was working there. This had all come to light after a citizen complaint of abuse. Israel was never listed on either school's applications for state certification. The California Department of Education wasn't aware he was employed, neither were the school districts that sent students to the schools. And this wasn't optional. It was a requirement to list all of the staff. Of course, the attorney for Tobin World disagreed with the California Department of Education and stated, Naturally, we have a dispute about the claims. Dr. Israel does not work at the schools. He is an independent consultant who has been working on projects from time to time. End quote. So he works there, but he doesn't work there, and he just pops in from time to time. What are we going with here? The state of California demanded Tobin World to immediately submit all behavior intervention plans created by Israel, who doesn't work there, from the 2014-2015 school year through the present to school districts to be reviewed by each student's special education team. They barred Israel from Tobin World II until all of the proper documentation was submitted and reviewed. The certification of Tobin World II and III was suspended, which prohibited any new student referrals to the school. All this again according to edsource.com. The good news was that the state of California doesn't and didn't allow the use of aversive behavior control techniques that include causing students physical pain or depriving them of food, water, or access to the bathroom facilities as the state of Massachusetts clearly did and still does. The bad news was that that didn't stop abuse at Tobin World, and the abuses dated all the way back to 1991. According to the LA Times, a staff member of Tobin World was charged with two felony child abuse charges after he held a nine-year-old child face down on a bus seat and pressed his knee onto the boy's back to restrain him because according to the staff member, as reported in the LA Times, the child was acting out. The nine-year-old child stopped breathing and CPR was administered by another staff member. A grown-ass man pressed his knee into the back of a nine-year-old child with enough force and length of time that the child stopped breathing. The child was hospitalized in critical condition with possible brain damage for days. The staff member eventually pled no contest to the felony child abuse charges. Tobin World had no comment. I mean, I can see why. In 2014, according to the San Francisco Chronicle, a lawsuit against Tobin World II was brought forth by the parents of a seven-year-old student 
alleging that their son was told he could not eat snacks or use the restroom. It was also alleged that in 2013, the school's vice president, a teacher, and three aides restrained the child, then kicked his feet out from under him, causing him to fall and sustain a bloody nose. When the boy cried and screamed, the suit alleged the aides wrapped plastic around his face, forcing him to choke on his own blood. What in the seventh circle of hell is wrong with these people? The abuse, of course, didn't stop there. In 2016, according to Slate.com, a teacher's aide was arrested for felony child abuse after cell phone videos were posted on Snapchat by an employee showing said aide striking a nine-year-old child in the face repeatedly and at one point while others restrained his arms and legs. A friend of the employee that watched the videos was so disturbed that she called the school's principal and the police. She spoke to the Contra Costa Times and stated, This is the third time this kind of thing has been recorded by him. It was so unbearable to watch. I had to do something about it. The third time. And remember, this is what is happening when employees know they're being recorded. Hell, he was recording himself. What was happening to these children when the cameras were off? The video is still available online. I'll post links in the show notes. And these weren't the only accounts of abuse. KRON News reported close to a dozen instances of police coming to look into allegations over staff being abusive to the students. While investigating the abuses at Tobin World 2, KRON also spoke to a former student, Jamal Victoria, who said he attended the same Tobin World campus for approximately eight years. He was shown the Snapchat videos and wasn't in the least bit surprised. Jamal recounted his own experience, stating to the outlet, they claim they are restraining these students for their safety and the safety of their students, but they use far more force than is actually necessary. Jamal was 11 years old when he came home from school with broken capillaries around his neck. He reported to his mom that he had been choked and restrained by a teacher for refusing to do his work. He described the incident to KRON, saying he was choked, quote, Homer Simpson style, just grabbed by the throat and shaken back and forth. He grabs me, throws me against the window, and then throws me to the ground. And then I'm just getting pinned. And a whole bunch of staff outside hear me getting pinned and they just come in to join in. Then I'm just held on the floor by like three or four staff, some of which are actually sitting on top of me like I'm a chair. I'm just held there the entire day. My blood vessels are popped and I'm salivating a lot because of the pressure. And eventually, I just start coughing up blood and they don't stop. When Jamal came home from school with those injuries, his mother filed a police report and pulled him from the school. With all the allegations and all the evidence of abuse, it came as no surprise that on July 26, 2016, Tobin World 2 closed its doors after school districts 
removed students, and withdrew funding, citing their concerns about Matthew Israel and the multiple allegations of abuse, according to EdSource.com. Judith Weber Israel, Matthew's wife, issued a statement reported by the Press.net. Quote, Tobin World 2 has served students in the East Bay for almost 20 years, and it hurts us so much to close our wonderful school. We have loved educating your children and wish we could stay open, but it's impossible due to the current situation. She further stated that her wonderful school was the victim of a false narrative perpetrated by the media. You know, nothing chaps my ass more than a perpetrator flipping the script and playing victim. Allegations and documented abuse follow Weber and her husband like flies on a pig's ass. But sure, it's a false narrative driven by the media. Give me a freaking break. On December 20th, 2019, Tobin World 3 would follow suit and close its doors, citing financial difficulties, according to the DailyNews.com. But Tobin World, the original, right there in Glendale, California, remains open to date of this recording. According to its own website, TobinWorld.org, in 2003, Tobin World expanded its charter to open a nonprofit community-based mental health clinic, treating children and adolescents struggling with developmental disabilities and mental health challenges, and supporting their families and meeting these challenges. We assist youth ages 5 to 21 in developing the skills and behaviors that support a happy and productive life. Sweet baby Jesus. That ranks pretty high up there in the top 10 most terrifying things I've ever read. These people are still treating five-year-olds. The Electric Skin Shock program doesn't exist in California because it's illegal everywhere else besides the state of Massachusetts. So there's one good note. Fast forward to April 22, 2016, when the U.S. FDA would finally start to take serious action and propose a ban on all, quote, electrical stimulation devices that are used for aggressive or self-injurious behavior. Why? According to a news release from the agency, the devices which deliver an electric shock as a presumed deterrent to these behaviors present an unreasonable and substantial risk to public health that cannot be corrected or eliminated through changes to the labeling. You don't say. Advocates, survivors, the UN, the ACLU, former employees, and the list goes on, had been screaming this at the top of their lungs for years. Finally, it appeared someone was listening, although as anything with justice or the government, it would take time before actions would be taken. This wasn't actually a ban, it was a proposed ban meaning in order for the FDA to actually ban the use of the devices, a few more steps would need to take place. The proposal would need to go through the notice and comment rulemaking process and possible litigation, and it could take years before the FDA would implement an actual ban. And while it appeared the government drug its feet, a firestorm ignited in those who had been fighting for the rights of disabled people for years. 
had all of their hard work finally paid off, would this actually put an end to electric skin shock? Could this finally be it? Protests were held outside of the JRC, at the FDA, state legislature, and eventually even at the White House. In June of 2018, representatives of ASON, which is the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, and other disability right advocates and medical experts met with the head of the FDA's Radiological Health and Medical Devices, Dr. Jeffrey Shuren. They voiced their concerns about electric shock at JRC and discussed the next steps towards the ban. They asked the FDA to act swiftly to ban the use of electric shock. And they didn't come alone. In fact, they brought about 290,000 of their closest friends in the form of a petition with 290,000 signatures representing community members in over 230 organizations calling for an immediate ban. And in case you're wondering what 290,000 signatures look like, picture 10 boxes slap full that had to actually be rolled in on hand trucks. I'll post a photo on my social accounts so you can take a peek. And I just want to note here that this wasn't the first petition. Cheryl McCollins, Andre's mom, started one. Greg Miller and others also started petitions that garnered major support. At the time of this recording, ASON's petition is still open and has now garnered the support of roughly 384,000 people and climbing every single day. If you haven't signed yet, you still can. I'll also link it in the show notes. And then it happened. After years and years and years of advocates fighting, the FDA banned the use of electric skin shock devices on March 6, 2020. I'll give it to you straight from the horse's mouth. Quote, ESDs administer electrical shocks through electrodes attached to the skin of individuals to attempt to condition them to stop engaging in self-injurious or aggressive behaviors. Many people getting exposed to these devices have intellectual or developmental disabilities that make it difficult to communicate their pain or consent. A number of significant psychological and physical risks associated with the use of these devices, including depression, anxiety, worsening of self-injury behaviors, and symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, pain, burns, and tissue damage. In addition, there is a risk of errant shocks from a device malfunction. As these risks cannot be eliminated through new or updated labeling, banning the product is necessary to protect public health. The ban does not apply to ESDs used to create aversions to other conditions or habits such as smoking. You can read the full final ruling at FDA.gov, which I'll also link in the show notes. This was an unprecedented move by the FDA. You see, only two other times in the history of ever have they enacted their power to ban medical devices, as it is only done in extreme circumstances, where there is a substantial and unreasonable risk of illness and injury that cannot be corrected by labeling, or if the device presents a substantial deception to patients and users about the benefits of said device. 
the FDA banned prosthetic hair fibers in 1983. These fake hair fibers were being implanted into people's scalps, and claims were made that they stimulated hair growth and concealed baldness, which they in fact did none of the sort and instead caused serious infections, illness, and injuries. So the FDA implemented a ban which stands to this day. In 2016, powdered gloves were banned based on the unreasonable and substantial risk of illness or injury to individuals exposed to the powdered gloves. The risk to both patients and healthcare providers when internal body tissue is exposed to the powder included severe airway inflammation and hypersensitivity reactions. Powder particles may also trigger the body's immune response causing tissue to form around the particles or scar tissue formation, which can lead to surgical complications. Again, this ban stands to this day, according to FDA.gov. In 2020, the ban on ESDs was enacted. There was a time frame given, and all students were supposed to be off the shock program by September of 2020, and modifications made to their programs to use alternate forms of therapy. But as we all know, 2020 was flaming trash, and there were delays in the court system and everywhere else. But here's where it gets real stupid. In July of this year of our Lord, 2021, a federal appeals court for the D.C. Circuit overturned the FDA ban in a two-to-one opinion, citing that while the FDA has the authority to ban a device, the agency acted inappropriately because the regulation only sought to disallow electrical stimulation devices for the purpose of treating aggressive or self-injurious behavior while continuing to allow the devices for other uses. Quote, the FDA has no authority to choose what medical devices a practitioner should prescribe or administer or for which conditions, reads the court opinion. All this according to disabilityscoop.com. Hold up, what? Let's talk about the other ESD devices the FDA failed to ban. Let's go with the most common and well-known. Y'all ever heard of a Pavlock? It was featured on Shark Tank not that long ago. It's a form of aversion therapy to help break bad habits. You purchase a band that you wear on your wrist, and you can shock yourself whenever you bite your nails, smoke, don't go to the gym, or whatever habit you are trying to create or bad habit you're trying to break. Notice I said you. You buy it. You control it. You hold the proverbial remote. I mean, it's an app on your phone, but whatever. You are in control. I'd also like to note here that according to Pavlok's own website, it's not for use on anyone under 18, anyone sensitive to shock, or anyone with any heart conditions, and you are actually advised to consult with your doctor before you go ahead and start shocking yourself. And hey, you're an adult, you want to give yourself a zap to break a bad habit? This is a free country. You'll get absolutely no judgment from me. You strap it to a child, I have a problem, and so would the law. You put it on another human being without their consent, that's a major problem. 
And we all know by now that students at the JRC don't consent to the shock program. Remember, it's court-ordered. They love to talk about that frequently and with conviction. If these students were consenting to this, would you need a court order? And let's talk milliamps for a second. The Pavlock and devices like it are capable of somewhere around a 4 milliamp shock. 4. The graduated electronic decelerator, 1, is capable of 30 milliamps and the GED4, 90. This is apples and oranges. Get out of here with that garbage because that's exactly what it is. And that's where we're at today, ladies and gentlemen. The ban has been reversed, and there are still human beings being shocked in Canton, Massachusetts, against their will. It's 2021, and here we are. This is torture. This is wrong. This is criminal. And this must end. And with that, we are out of time. But I want to leave you with another story of an actual human who was subjected to electric shock torture, I mean treatment, at the Judge Rotenberg Center. Modesto Santos spoke out on ABC's Nightline. Modesto was a student at JRC from the time he was 10 years old all the way up until he escaped at the age of 15. He was on the electric shock program. At 13, he attempted to escape because he just couldn't take it anymore. After he was captured, he was placed on the board, which we've talked about in previous episodes. To refresh, it's a four-point restraint board where each hand is in a separate restraint as well as each foot, face down and completely helpless. After Modesto was restrained, two separate timers were set, one for 30 minutes and one for every two minutes. Modesto was shocked repeatedly every two minutes while he begged them to stop. He begged, but they continued. At 15, with the help of a staff member, Modesto escaped. And you heard that correctly. A staff member literally helped Modesto sneak out and run away. He never looked back. Modesto chose to be homeless on the streets for a time, rather than endure another day of torture at JRC. At the time of his interview, he was living independently after receiving care at another facility. Former students reported that they felt the reason the staff member helped him was because she felt bad about how frequently Modesto Santos was punished with shocks. These former students also reported that Modesto would be shocked repeatedly until he seemed out of it and lethargic. Modesto reported that at his time during JRC, he had lost count of the number of times he had been shocked, and that years after escaping, the effect of what was done to him at JRC still lingered, stating, I can't sleep sometimes. I have nightmares. I feel the shocks in my sleep. Michael Flamia, the school's lawyer, also spoke to Nightline and denied that Modesto was shocked excessively, stating that, according to the JRC's reports, Modesto only received 56 skin shocks the entire time he was on the program over four years. Hmm. According to JRC's reports, 
I know who I believe, but I'll let you decide for yourself. There are hundreds of students at the Judge Rotenberg Center today. I've read reports of between 51 to 55 students still strapped to GED devices. This is their reality. I leave you with the words of Mike Peraro, former teacher at JRC. Quote, they can't go anywhere, they can't hurt anybody, but they're punishing them for swearing, spitting. They might have hit someone, talking without permission. He, in reference to Matthew Israel, is using the excuse of the very serious, bizarre self-injurious to use the shock treatment. To me, it's an experiment. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram, at least underscore of these, or my Facebook, at least of these. New episodes drop every Thursday. More information can also be found at AutisticHoya.net. Lydia Brown has done an absolutely amazing job of creating a living archive of Judge Rotenberg Center's abuses. I'll link that in the show notes. So much information can be found there. You can go to Occupy the Judge Rotenberg Center on Facebook. The folks that occupy the JRC have been at the forefront of this battle for over two decades. If you're still wanting more, check out Hops and Hooves podcast with Sam and Eric. She loves horses, he loves beer, and they happen to be two board-certified behavior analysts who stand against the Judge Rotenberg Center. You can also check out the bearded behaviorist, the one and only Brian Middleton at Obehave Podcast. Brian is also a board-certified behavior analyst and outspoken critic of the JRC. All really cool humans, 10 out of 10 recommend you check them out. I can't leave you today without the incredible Jennifer Masumba. Jen's all-new book, Shouting at Leaves, is set to release on November 11th, but you can pre-order now. I'll post links on my socials, and you can find Jen on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok. I mean, she's everywhere. Just search Jennifer Masumba. That's M-S-U-M-B-A. I told y'all this girl was incredible. We can now add author to her very lengthy list of achievements. I had the privilege to read an advanced copy, and y'all, I can't recommend this book enough. It's a unique look into the autistic experience and an amazing story of survival and triumph against all odds. I am absolutely honored to say that Jen will be joining us right here next week. Believe me, you don't want to miss it. Until then, let's take a sneak peek into Shouting at Leaves with Jennifer Masumba. How did I get here? How did I get in this room with this woman pacing around me? Me, strapped down awaiting my punishment. It's 2002 for crying out loud. This is America. I'm supposed to be free. But the rules are different if you're disabled, I guess. Somehow, I'm a little less human. No. No, I'm not. I have worth. Mom always taught you that, Jennifer. Be strong. When the bullies made you cry, Mom cried with you. I have to be strong. I have to be strong for her. Anyway, I'm hard-headed. I get that from Dad. I refuse to let them see my fear. I won't scream when the pain comes. 
But it's okay. I do make it out of here. I'm destined for a beautiful life. Love is coming. Life is waiting. I just have to shout at the leaves and hold on a little longer. <laughs>